We're continuing through our sermon series looking at the book of Exodus, God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, freeing Israel in order to have them live with him and worship him and follow his laws. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen that God has commanded his people uh, regarding how they should remember and commemorate the night that they were brought out, that he delivered them how they should engage with the truth that God sent the tenth plague to kill off the firstborn, but pass over all of their houses because of the blood of a sacrifice. And now they are continuing on their journey, running into the last tiny towns on the outskirts of Egypt, literally standing at the edge of the wilderness. And again, Moses records some random information about their journey. As we hear this information read, I would like for you to ask yourself this question. Where would you not follow God? If God gave you a roadmap of your life, what is it that you might look at and say, no, 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 not going there, anywhere but there? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 13, 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Atham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Oh God, as we come to you this morning, we ask that you would send your spirit to us to fill our hearts and our minds with the good news of your gospel contained here in your word. We pray that you would help us to honestly look at our own hearts, to be honest with ourselves and with you about how much we often dislike your path for us. Help us to trust you when you say that you will be with us. Help us to see that you are at work, even though our life seems to be going in crazy ways. Help us to trust that you are a God who keeps your promises. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. Earlier, in the beginning of May, a young woman named Amanda Eller went for a short hike in the forest of North Maui. You may have heard this story. Uh, She was going for a short hike that she had been on before, so she left her water, her cell phone, her wallet in her car at the trailhead. After going a short distance into the forest, she turned around and started to go back on what she thought was the trail that led her to her car. Unfortunately, she made a wrong turn, and each successive correction drove her further and further into the dense volcanic forests of Maui. She told reporters that she's pretty sure she hiked from 10.30 a.m. until midnight that first day. She spent the night in the forest, woke up the next day, hiked around some more, and actually got further and further into the wilderness, further and further away from her car. 
It was the morning of the third day that she realized, I'm probably not going to find the trailhead, and I should be looking for fresh water instead. It was also on that third day that she fell 20 feet off a cliff, broke her leg, and tore her other meniscus. On the fourth day, she lost her shoes in a flash flood. She was completely and utterly lost, physically broken, sunburned, starving, and dehydrated. What was it that enabled her to survive for 13 more days? She survived for 17 days in the wilderness. What was it? This is what she had to say when asked that question. She said, I heard this voice that said, you have a choice to make. You can sit on that rock and die, or you can start walking down that waterfall and choose life. And I chose life, she said. This voice came to her and presented her with two options and told her the way she needed to go if she wanted to live. That's what I want this passage from Exodus to be about. That's what I want God to be telling us this morning. That when I am lost or hopeless, when the future is scary or confusing, when the path ahead seems to be impossible or unknown, God shows up and he speaks to his people. He leads them down the path that they need to go. And I don't really need a pillar of fire by night or pillar of cloud by day, but a small voice that speaks the right directions, right? I want God to treat me the way that he treats Israel here, for God to lead my life the way that he leads the people of Israel. Maybe you've wanted the same thing. God, just tell me what you want me to do. Maybe you've thought, should I take this job? Should we move and change schools? Should I leave this relationship? Should I confront this family member or this friend? Should I Should I? Should I? I wish God would just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I want this passage to say, don't worry, God does. God will tell you exactly what you need to do. God will show you exactly where you need to go. But that's not what this passage says. In fact, that's not what Scripture says at all. The whole Bible tells us that sin has broken apart God's family, that our sin has separated us from God, And God wants to bring his entire family back together. And he's willing to do whatever he needs to to bring his family back home. This passage tells us that God knows the path that Israel needs to take to get back home. The same is true for God's family today. God knows the right path that you need to take to get back home. And most likely, it's not the path that you'd choose for yourself. Because our hearts often choose paths that lead us away from God because we would choose a different path. God graciously gives us guideposts to let us know that the path he's chosen for us is the right one. Breadcrumbs, if you will, showing us that even though the way is hard and often through the wilderness, it's the only way that leads us back home. That's what this passage tells us this morning. Just two points. Stay with me. Two points. You'd choose a different path, so God gives us guideposts. We're going to look at two guideposts in particular. Two points, you'd choose a different path, so God gives us guideposts. Let's look at the fact that you would choose a different path. This passage says that God didn't lead them through the land of the Philistines, but instead led them by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Two paths in seemingly opposite directions, but in reality, they have the same destination, 
God's taking them to the promised land. God told Abraham, the father of the people of Israel back in Genesis, that the land of Canaan would become their homeland. He would give it to them. That's where his family would live and where God would dwell with his people. After being slaves in Egypt for 400 plus years, having their own homeland sounds like a great thing. They want to go do this quickly. Let's go to Canaan. Add to that the fact that this road trip includes at least 600,000 plus men, not including women and children, or all the animals and flocks that they took with them, or the non-Israelites that go with them. Think about that. That is one heck of a caravan. Lots of people. Let's get to Canaan as fast as possible. I don't want to have to deal with all of these folks traveling around for a long time. Well, the fastest way to Canaan was up by the Mediterranean Sea, and it would take about two weeks for them to march there. One small detail, uh, that way led through the land that was inhabited by a people known as the Philistines. That's okay. There's another route. They can go in a different direction, right? The southern route, which is through the wilderness to the Red Sea. Uh, Literally, the people are walking into a sandwich between the Egyptians that they just saw decimated and are probably pretty upset that their entire workforce has left and a massive body of water, the Red Sea, that all but cuts Africa off from the Sinai Peninsula. They're squished in there. And after that, it's not two weeks of marching to Canaan, but 40 years of marching to Canaan. Now, if Israel had been given these two options, the way by the Mediterranean Sea, two weeks marching, or the way of the wilderness, smushed up against the Red Sea, and then 40 years, which path do you think that they would choose? Not the 40 years and the Egypt Red Sea sandwich, not at all. They'd take the two weeks. But God knew better. Verse 17, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. See, God knew if they were told 40 years or two weeks, they would take the two weeks But God also knew that if they were told the two weeks involves you fighting the Philistines, they'd choose a third way. They'd choose to go back to slavery. In this statement, God is actually filleting the heart of Israel, opening up the reality that they don't trust him. Even though they just witnessed him perform amazing acts, Miracles bring down ten plagues upon the people of Egypt and miraculously prevent them, his people, Israel, from being touched by these plagues. God showed his power by bringing the foremost empire on the planet at that time, Egypt, to its knees. Pharaoh, whom everyone around thought was God incarnate, literally begged Israel to leave. That's what God had just done. And yet, what God says is, as soon as they see the Philistines, they won't think I can do it. And they'll choose instead comfort. Even the comfort of slavery. See, this is how our hearts work. When we see trouble, when we experience suffering or struggle, when it seems like everyone is out to get us, when the world is against us, we run for comfort even if we know that that comfort is bad. A couple of years ago, I was talking to my dad after his second wife had left him. And I I gave him the one phrase of wisdom that I generally tell everybody who's dealing with something that's traumatic or stressful. 
I said, don't let this turn you inward. Don't let this isolate you. Because in isolation, sin feels comfortable. Right? We begin to make really poor choices when we feel like we're all alone. We choose comfort, even if we know that that comfort is destructive. Now, often in day-to-day life, it's not that clear-cut, right? It doesn't necessarily come down to some great theological choice, but it happens more with hesitation. Also, a couple years ago, I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple that are married now. They go up to the church in Palo Alto, and we were talking about the fact that God calls husbands to sacrifice for their wives, to be sacrificial as Jesus is sacrificial. And I asked the husband-to-be before we got into everything, what do you think that looks like? Like, how does that make you feel that that's your call? And he was like, I mean, sacrifice, yeah, I can do that. It's not a problem. If I have to take a bullet for her, I can definitely do that. And I was like, yeah, I think God really has something different in mind, Um, more along the lines of like waking up every day and choosing to serve her and love her in the way that she wants to be loved, to meet her needs, to put her needs above your needs kind of thing. And he was like, oh, that, that's a little more difficult. That's not quite as easy. That's actually, just to be honest, somewhat uncomfortable. And looking at that now, I realized like to him, taking a bullet was more comfortable in that moment than serving his wife in that way. Right? The, the giving up of comfort causes us to hesitate. If the path that God has called us to means I'm not going to be comfortable, I, I might want to do the comfortable thing instead. When the path is difficult or uncertain, we retreat to comfort even if we know that what we're doing is destructive or it's wrong. It's more comfortable than uncertainty or pain that might be ahead. We've all experienced this thought. I know I should do this, but instead we run to something else, to overworking, to shopping, to our phones, to money management, to treating other people harshly so that we can gain control, to a bottle, to websites, to a club, to relationships, whatever it is, you might be willing to admit that that thing you run to is destructive or even objectively wrong, but it's far more comfortable than the wilderness ahead. God tells us this is how our hearts work. He tells us the path that I have for you might lead you into the wilderness. It might lead you into enemy territory. It might be a path that spans years and years and years, and your gut reaction is going to be, no, 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 I want to choose the path of comfort. But God's word to us is that his path is right. And so he gives us guideposts to let us know that the path we are on, that he has chosen for us, is good and right and leads us home. God gives us guideposts. And there are two specific guideposts that we see in this passage that are powerful for us this morning. The first is the guideposts of promise. So far, we know what Israel has taken out of Egypt when they've left. They've taken a lot of stuff. They took all their families, packed everything up when it was time to go. They took their animals, their flocks, the things that they valued that were their source of wealth. They also took tons and tons of unleavened bread. They didn't have time to let the bread rise. You can go listen to previous sermons about that. They took the gold and silver 
of the Egyptians and their, their neighbors when they left. Some of them took their neighbors. The neighbors decided, you know what, I'm going to follow Israel's God, let's go. They took lots of stuff. And Moses in this passage said they took one other thing, and it's kind of curious. They took the bones of Joseph, the patriarch who had brought the people of Israel to Egypt in the first place. Why would they take the bones of Joseph? Verse 19, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Moses quotes that phrase directly from the end of Genesis when Joseph asks his sons to promise this. See, God had promised Joseph that even though Israel was coming into the land of Egypt, one day he would deliver them out and take them to the promised land. And Joseph believed God's promise so much that he made his children promise to take his bones. And his children made their children promise to take their father's bones. And that commitment to Joseph was passed down throughout the generations. Because in each generation, someone believed God was faithful to keep his promise. And one day he would deliver them. And so as they're walking out of Egypt, out of what they've known for the last 400 years, what they see is a promise kept. The bones of this man prove the promise that was made to Joseph is being kept in our presence. We are following a promise-keeping God. This is a tangible promise kept. And so as they look out at the wilderness, as they look out at the Red Sea, they're able to say, if God promised to bring us out and it took 400 years to get us out of Egypt, he's promising to get us to Canaan somehow. I can trust God because of this promise kept. Nicole and I celebrated our 11th anniversary last month. And we were talking about trying to do something special, go away for a couple of nights when her mom was in town. And while we were still undecided, I found a restaurant online that we hadn't been to before, that something looked good, and decided, I'll make a reservation here just in case we can't work out a night away, and we wanted to do something fun and new on our actual anniversary. And so as I was going through Open Table on the app, I was putting in all the information, you know, selecting that it was an anniversary, hoping that they, you know, had some cake or something special for us. And I got to the screen that said, the, res- the restaurant that you're reserving at requires that you put in a credit card. Maybe you've had that experience before, but I've never experienced that. I mean, it makes sense for like a hotel or for a rental car place, but uh, they wanted me to guarantee my reservation, right? As you think about it, it makes sense. A reservation is me saying, I want to come and sit at that table and pay money for your food and your drink. And if I don't show up, they miss out on that money. So instead, they want me to promise. Well, I could easily break my promise. So they have a promise-keeping system you put in your credit card. If you don't show up, they charge your credit card, right? If we're handing over money, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to show up and I'm going to spend some more money at your restaurant. That's how it works. Tangible promise kept to prove that you can trust us going forward. That's what God does by having them bring up the bones of Joseph. What about you? Where have you seen God keeping promises in your life? Have you experienced him preserving you? keeping watch over you, getting you through something you didn't expect to get through? And what is it that you can look to to be reminded that God is a promise-keeping God? I've kept this piece of obsidian rock in my bag for 14 years. I was hiking uh, a dormant volcano in Africa in the Great Rift Valley of Kenya 
14 years ago when I came across this piece of obsidian. Now, obsidian forms when magma cools rapidly and doesn't crystallize super quickly. The last time that that volcano erupted was 1863. And this piece of obsidian lay in the ground until 2005. I thought it was cool, so I picked it up. That's it. But over the years, I've realized that one of the reasons that I think this is so powerful is because it reminds me that God's not done working. Even if I don't see it, even if nobody sees it for hundreds of years, God's not done working in my life, in the life of my family, in the lives of people that I interact with. God's not done working. It's a promise that he makes. And for some reason, this stupid piece of rock reminds me of that. Now that's quaint It's cute. Not everyone has something like that. But every week, we come to this table, a tangible promise from God that his people have been purchased, like Israel, through the blood of a sacrifice. A tangible promise that, like Israel, we are on a path that guarantees to lead us home. A path that is mapped out by God. And is difficult, but a path that we are on with God. This is the other guidepost he gives us, his presence. Right? Perhaps the most amazing part of this passage is the fact that God led his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right? The, the passage tells us that it was fire at night so that the people could see, they could travel by night if they needed to. Some scholars think that maybe it was cloud by day to give the people shade. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point of the passage is not that there was a gigantic column of cloud and fire blazing a trail through the wilderness of Egypt. No, the the point of the passage is that God himself was with his people, leading them, guiding them, caring for them with his presence. And throughout the Old Testament, God shows his presence by fire or by cloud. We can track this throughout the Old Testament. God showed up to Moses at the beginning of Exodus and he spoke to Moses through what? A bush that was on fire. He leads his people out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And eventually when they get to Mount Sinai, he calls Moses up to talk to him. And you know what happens? A great dense cloud covers the top of the mountain. And then he tells his people to build a tent that he can put the Ark of the Covenant in and he can go and meet with the people there. And he says, whenever I'm there to meet with you, a cloud will rest on top of the tent. And years and years later, when they get to the promised land, sorry for ruining that story for you, they'll get there eventually. King Solomon follows God, and obeys God, excuse me, and builds a temple. And they have a ceremony to dedicate the temple, a worship service, and a great rushing, cloudy, smoky wind fills the innermost courts of the temple. God is saying, I am here. I am present. And if you're like me, you say, yeah, why can't we get a little bit of that? Why can't I just get some kind of sweet fire or some kind of weird cloud thing to let me know that you're here? That I'm going in the right direction, God. Just like show me that you're here. Why doesn't God do that anymore? He doesn't need to do that anymore. Cloud and fire were representations of God's presence. But according to the New Testament, God didn't represent himself when he came as Jesus. God came really as Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt 
in bodily form. It wasn't just some kind of great representation that God was here and around. God was actually here and around, walking with people as man. You can't get any better representation than that. If we want to know what God is like, what it's like to live with God in his presence, we see Jesus interacting with his people. But what about now? What about us now? Jesus isn't around us anymore. We can't go down to Jerusalem and see Jesus hanging out on the corner. What happens after Jesus ascends into heaven? That's recorded for us too. In the book of Acts chapter 2, that's what this says. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together, that is, the disciples, those who had followed Jesus around, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Does that sound familiar? And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? God shows us after walking among men, really, God incarnate walking among men, the ultimate revelation of God, after he ascends into heaven, God doesn't have to show up as a pillar of fire or fill some building with a cloud and you go and find it. He rushes into your heart. He fills your soul with his presence, with the Holy Spirit. God's presence is with us. God's presence is in us. So how do you tap into that? How do you engage with God dwelling in you? We follow the same thing that the apostles did. They ate meals together. They gathered together. They prayed together. They cried over losses. They celebrated successes. They told and retold the story of what Jesus did for them. They went out and they told other people, about Jesus' work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. See, you engage with God's presence in you by engaging with other people who have God's presence. God invites us to see his presence in us and in us together, the church, God's family. And like a pillar of fire or a mighty rushing wind, it might not always be pleasant. It might be a little intimidating, sometimes scary, to realize that God calls us to be together, to meet together, to experience Him as we do life together. But the truth is that it's another guidepost that God gives us to show us that He is here with us. And even though the way that He has mapped out might lead us through the wilderness, might lead us through enemy territory, God is with His family. His presence is always with us. A couple of weeks ago, a little boy in Michaela's kindergarten class, his name is Alex, uh, came in one morning and told the class he had something to share, walked to the front of the room and dropped to his knees and through tears told the class that his father had died. And all of the kindergartners in their class started crying and they were so brokenhearted seeing their friend cry like this. And he told them the story and they all went home and shared it with their parents and asking questions about what happened and where Alex's dad was. A couple days later, Alex's mom uh, wrote an email clarifying what had happened to her husband. Five-year-olds just have such a unique perspective on life. She wanted to make sure that all the details were given. And she said that uh, Alex's dad had been battling pancreatic cancer for a couple years. And he had steadily gotten worse. And in the last couple of weeks, he came home and was on hospice before he died. 
but that he had a chance to talk to Alex about the fact that life was going to be different, that he wasn't going to be there, that it was going to be really hard. And as I read this, realizing that this woman is writing about losing her husband, about what her son is going through losing his dad, I was like, that is a path through wilderness and enemy territory, both. And I don't want that. I never want to walk down that path. That's too uncomfortable. I want to choose comfort. But at the bottom of her email, she wrote a little bit about how Alex was dealing with it. She said he was incredibly sad. But he knew that his dad was with God in heaven and that his dad was running again. Cancer had stripped him of his uh, joy for running. He couldn't run anymore. And I don't want to put words in in a five-year-old's mouth, but he believes that his dad is doing what he loves with whom he was made to do it with. It sounds like home to me. What this passage tells us is that life is hard. The path that God has for us is the only path that we need to get back home, to get to heaven, to get with him. The reality is, through cynicism and the difficulty of the world, we don't trust that that's the path we need to be on. God invites us to trust like a child, that when God says, I'll bring you home, he will. And in order to fight the cynicism and skepticism that we have, he gives us these guideposts, promises that he has kept in the past, giving us strength to trust the promise of the future, the guidepost of his presence, letting us know that we're not doing this alone. He has given us a family, but more importantly, he is with us. The path might be through the wilderness, but it is the path God has chosen for us. It's the path that is best for us. And it's the path that God walks with us down in order to bring us home back to him. Let's pray. God, this isn't necessarily what we want to hear this morning. I want to hear that you're going to make life easy. You're going to tell me what choice to make. You're going to show me the right way. God, I ask that you give us all strength to see that you are good, that you have not forgotten us, that you have not abandoned us, you've not led us into the wilderness to die, but that, God, you are with us. That you keep your promises. And even though life and the life ahead seems scary and difficult and challenging, it is the path that leads us home. We thank you that you are a God who keeps promises. And the promise you made through the blood of Jesus is that anyone who is in Christ is forgiven. That our seat at the family table is purchased. And you will secure our path to that place. To the great celebration that we will Uh, enjoy as we live with you forever. Thank you for the work that you've done and are doing in us. Strengthen us. Help us to strengthen each other. We pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.